0: Hi, welcome to Matters of the Heart and Soul. I'm your host, Janie Sharlow. Matters of the Heart and Soul is a podcast to raise awareness and awaken humanity to all that is within. We want to be a beacon of light on your life journey. Hey guys, welcome back to Matters of the Heart and Soul podcast. On this upcoming podcast, we talk with the author of Elevators to My Life, um, Elizabeth Samboon. Elizabeth, who was named at birth Mary Ann Break, um, we go through her memoir, a book that she wrote about child torture, trafficking, grit, and grace. And by far, Elizabeth is definitely one of the most bravest people I've ever spoken to. Um, she has been through so much and just the things that she's been through, most people would have died from. And I really do mean that. Her book is, is amazing. So if, if any of this stuff resonate with you, I would definitely recommend that you get the book. Um, we, the podcast is a little bit long, but it was just, you know, I couldn't stop it in some of the, the points because, you know, you can't just stop certain stories, So um, just take a listen. I think there's definitely a lot that you can get from this. Um, Definitely just listening to how brave she has been. Um, Elizabeth is also a life coach right now. She helps people through adoptions because she has been through many adoptions. We also talked about that um, on the podcast and just some of the darkness through adoption. And Elizabeth shares her side of, um, you know, if adoption is really to protect children so um the podcast is very interesting um you can definitely find her book on Amazon um and just just take a listen and uh, see you guys on the other side Hey guys, welcome back to Matters of the Heart and Soul podcast. This is your girl Janie Charlotte your host. And welcome to another episode. We have on the show today, Miss Elizabeth Sanboom. Sanboom. <laughs> you got it? <laughs> yes. Um, author of Elevators to My Life. All right. Um, I read her book in a day. It's an autobiographical memoir of child torture, trafficking, grit, and grace. And, um, the book is amazing i mean i was drawn in there's so much to talk about today um and we want to just break it down um elizabeth is when I tell you she's like a real live, um, courageous hero, I would say that been through so much things that most people would have died from she is still here. And she's told her story in this book. And um, I definitely recommend it. And we'll talk about how you can get the book and all that. So welcome to the podcast, Elizabeth. Thank you for sharing your testimony with our listeners today.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, Janie. I really appreciate it. You are such a sweetheart. And, you know, I'm so glad that we were able to do this like very last minute. And I'm so proud of you for getting through the book like that. To me, that's an accomplishment and a half. But I'm just I'm just so honored and, and just so blessed to be here and just to be able to, I guess, encourage, you know, your listeners and, you know, encourage you as you're going on through this podcast, you know, journey and just getting all of these amazing guests. So that's just super powerful. And I'm really, really proud of you. And I'm just so thankful that you allow people to just you know, use this space to connect souls and, and stories. That is such an awesome gift, sweetie.
0: Yes, and that's, that's what it's about. So I wanna dive right in. I'm gonna just read really quickly from the very page one, okay, because I mean, this is literally how you started it, okay? At the age of 16, my mother was raped by her uncle, my great aunt's husband. This brutal act created me. Throughout her pregnancy, she eased her shame by drowning herself in alcohol, damaging my brain with every sip and causing defects that would last my lifetime. I often wonder if she was trying to cause an abortion, but this is something
1: only God knows. So Elizabeth,
0: just take it from there.
1: Okay, so, um, well, I guess, like, the thing with poverty, um, is that I think that there's not enough resources to help people through trauma, and, um, I believe it's, like, chapter 10 or 12, like, I talk about, like, you know, what she was dealing with during that time, like, my aunt was murdered when I was, uh, six months in gestation and so there was a huge issue with that like her family was like extremely poor and there was like um people it's rumored now this isn't in the book but it is rumored that people in my family kind of helped clean up my aunt's murder because of like drug dealings and stuff like that and so I think that it's just a huge picture of what poverty can do and I think that you know, it's just one of those things that poverty creates trauma and trauma creates more poverty. And it's just sort of this, It's a I don't want to say that it's a generational curse, but I will definitely say that it's a cycle.
0: Definitely, I, I
1: don't like, I don't like using the word generational curse. I think that it has a very negative connotation. I think that it has a lot of condemnation associated with that. Yeah. And I think that if you want to be free, it's probably a good idea not to use that when you're talking I, I agree
0: I use generational strongholds I don't. Yeah, that's don't, a good word yeah, I like I that
1: word better than curse because like a yep. curse is like there's no you almost don't get an outlet from it but yep. generational stronghold that's a better that's a better word because you can break free from a stronghold, but how do you break free from a curse? Right. So I like exactly. that word a lot better. See, yeah. I think, I think you, I think you're onto something.
0: <laughs> yeah. I am um, kind of just doing some of my own self-healing and stuff like that. I, I came across that there's strongholds that you could break yeah. off and you could be free. So mm-hmm. tell us about, so clearly your mother was raped by her uncle, which created mm-hmm. you, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um. And in short, and later in the book, you kind of said that it just all came out that you had fetal alcohol syndrome, right? Just mm-hmm. later yep. on. So yep. earlier,
1: was that not was that
0: not picked up on? Or
1: well, there's sort of a mixture of diagnoses that I have. So um, I think it. I think by God's grace, I don't think that I ended up with necessarily fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, as doctors have said. But more recently, I got diagnosed with autism, which makes a lot more sense to me. Mm-hmm. Because like, I mean, just from my book, like I ended up writing it in four days. And I have like a psychologist friend and he's like, you know, that it's not very normal to be able to write a book. And in four days and like always had like this thing with like words and like putting stories together and stuff and like I'm super super honest and so I think that I think what doctors thought was like FASD I think was kind of misdiagnosed when I was younger as to having Asperger's but by the time I got kind of the pieces of Asperger's had kind of fit in like I had already published the book because this was a more recent diagnosis but I'm thinking that it was probably maybe even a mixture of the two, but I definitely am more sure that I have like Asperger's than fetal alcohol spectrum disorder because a lot of people that have, who are adults that have fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, most of them cannot live independently. Most of them don't know how to drive most of them. And so I'm like, okay, well, I don't think I necessarily have fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, but I definitely have autism so yeah. I I think yeah yeah so for
0: people who don't know what Asperger's are can you explain briefly what that is
1: it's yeah it's like it's a neurodivergence in the brain so it's sort of like how to explain it it's like so there's like it's like high functioning autism so um you know I'll wake up one day and I'll wake like oh like I want to wear this outfit and my skin is just like nope you're not putting that on today like it's just not nope like I'm really sensitive to noise. I'm very sensitive to um, sensations, like anything that's like on my skin. I, I like, you know, when I sleep, it's almost like, you know, I have to like sleep a certain way. I'm very routine oriented. And I kind of am, I go into like a little bit of a shock mode when my routine is a little bit disruptive because like, I don't know how to handle it. I'm not so great in social settings but I'm extremely extroverted but sometimes I can be extremely like introverted where I'm like nope I don't feel like going out I don't feel like dealing with this so and I really had to learn social cues Mm -hmm. but I think with girls that have autism I think that it's very hidden I think with boys it's a lot more noticeable Mm -hmm. But I think because the female brain is like very adaptable on so many levels that I think Mm -hmm. it's very, very hard to diagnose a female with autism because we just like learn how to mask certain social cues. We're able to sort of like blend in a little bit more. And so it's a little bit harder, harder for girls to be picked up on. But, uh, textures in my mouth, for instance, like I really struggle with like certain foods. Like I cannot eat peas. Like if I have to eat them, like if I'm at somebody's house and they've served them to me, I will not, I won't not eat them. You said, but peas? I have, yeah, peas. I cannot, is it I the cannot, texture? It's is it the a... texture. It is just quarried in my mouth. And so what I've learned how to do is like, I will eat them, but I swallow them whole. I don't actually chew them. And I just drink like a lot of water because like, I don't want to like offend the person that like served them to me. So like there's like, and I do have like, I don't know. I do have some other quirks. Um, It's it's quite interesting
0: listening to you because, and I know there's the spectrum, right? With autism, but this, you're probably the first adult that I've talked to with autism. I am t- typically talking to like parents of children with autism, mm-hmm. but you're not describing anything. That's not at, like that's majorly abnormal. Like I find myself to be a sensitive, I'm sensitive mm-hmm. to smells. I'm sensitive mm-hmm. to food. I don't like certain textures. I don't eat oatmeal. Cause I don't like the way it feels in my mouth. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, it's so interesting. I just think that sometimes when we identify things with people that sometimes it's just gifts is just
1: it you know. is and that's one thing that I really learned like so but if I'm like soup like okay so I'll give you an example I'm um, in my book I think closer to the end of it and I'm talking about my healing journey um and we we'll we'll gotta to, come back to the book okay we'll okay yeah I have to, to come back to that but yeah like There are certain obsessions that I have. And like, once I get like an obsession, it is really, really hard for me to let go of an obsession. Okay. So like, if I'm working on a book, I'll forget to eat, like, I'll forget to shower I'll like and my desk like my office looks like my desk looks exactly like Einstein's desk except that it's like full of writing instead of like mathematical equations right and and like I'm like one of those people like if I have an idea I can like literally write it for like hours in like 15 25 different ways and then like flip it on its head and say like well this like even with the title of my book the reason that I called it that was because it was like an allegory because everyone's afraid of being in an elevator mm-hmm. or everyone has that loss of control of trying to get to the floor that they want to get to, but can't because somebody pushed the wrong button. And so they, ha- you know, so it yeah. was something that everybody can relate to. And my husband asked me, he's like, how the heck could you come up with that? And I was like, well, it is sort of like the way that life goes. It's like an elevator to, to all of these different things. And he's like, But you wrote an entire book on this like really basic like allegory. He's like not so many people. So it's things like that that like people will just be like, how did you like I can write a like a book on like just like small things, but it's just because of the way that my brain works. It's not necessarily that I have a disability. It's just that my brain works really differently and I have no filter. Yeah, I have no filter. That's my biggest problem. And I've learned through coaching, like, where like I really have to like say like, okay, is this like a thought for now? Like, is this something that they need to know now, or is this something that you can hold back on? Because with a coach, that is like a huge component, and I was I really had to hone in on that, and like, I've really had to learn how to bite my tongue yeah and so yeah that that's one thing that w- with having autism that's like another thing that I really struggled with with a long time because I'm just so honest yeah I'm so honest and so <laughs> I just I, I think we need more honesty I think we need more honesty <laughs> I don't
0: know <laughs> I, like I'm very honest what I have learned is that I could be honest as long as I could say it and do it in love and I think yeah, that's people-
1: the part of the autistic brain that doesn't work so well because like I'm honest to the point of like it's so blunt that it's like like it was funny because like I was talking to, like, this, like, when, like, for instance, if I'm, like, on Facebook or something, I literally have to ask myself, like, okay, that, okay, I'll give you an example, perfect example. So we were watching a movie. My husband and I were watching a movie. And I really did not like the antagonist of this particular movie. Mm -hmm. And I looked at him and I was like, I just want her to go through a meat grinder and I just want to hear her bones crunch, like, through the meat grinder and my my husband's like Elizabeth like what the heck like and I was like but she's so evil like she's yeah. so evil. It's not that I want like the person that's yeah. asking but her character like I just want to put her through a meat grinder right
0: now. yeah I got
1: it <laughs> so I get there's it. just like yeah so there's just this like there's just this like really like serious like brutal honesty that comes out in my private life that most people don't really get like A glimpse of unless they've been around me for like a really long time I'm like okay like I can like open up about this or open up about that but you know I don't normally talk like that but he was like that's honest he's like that was like you know it's just this like brutal odyssey that just comes out but
0: honestly I think you'll be surprised at how many people are honest behind closed doors. Like, you know, I have friends that are very honest, but, you know, they're not going to say things in the, in a public platform or something like that. So right. I find that to be pretty normal anyway. But well, I'm glad. Yes. All right. Let's get to the book. So let's start in your three-year-old self, um, because you were very descriptive about that in the book. Um, mm-hmm. Let's talk about that with your mother you were actually born mary Ann bleak break right yeah Mm yeah um and then of course you were adopted along the way and the name was changed Mm uh but let's talk about what happened to you between three and four years old and then what town did you grow up in henrietta oklahoma all right so can you tell our listeners a little bit about that town
1: Okay, so if you guys are very familiar with the remake of Footloose that was originally done in, I don't know, whatever year that was, um, with Kevin Bacon, a long time ago now, but they remade that movie, but that movie is actually based on Henrietta. Henrietta, um, for a very long time, it was, um, it was illegal to dance there until I believe 2017 or 2018. It was illegal to dance. Wow. But they had some really bizarre way of doing things. So, you know, anything that was like happening that was like bad behind closed doors, it was like, okay, that's just their problem as long as it's like not being brought up into the open. So everything was like very hidden, everything was like very closed. It was like religious like rigor on the outside but whatever happened be closed between closed doors it wasn't going to be something that they talked about unless it was something that they thought was sinful or evil then it was going to be brought out into the light right Mm -hmm. so in my case so to give you an example the doctor that delivered me delivered my mom delivered my grandmother so it was like generations um My family had originated from California and they had come in from the potato famine in the 1800s. My great, 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 great grandmother did the trail from California to Oklahoma four or five times in horse and carriage. So this is a very old town. It was an old mining town. Um, it's based on, um, the town is actually kind of built around Indian reservations, some burial grounds, a lot of, um, sorry, I get choked up when it talks about, like when I talk about racism, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of, um, racism. (laughs) Yeah. And so for instance, like the town library, um, so funny i can talk about my own story but then when i talk about like other people's trauma i can't handle it so yeah, weird yeah. but you know it was it was it was um it was the, the town the, library the, it was the town library and it was used for you know hanging black people
0: mm. lynching them did and, you witness
1: that? Did you? No, I okay. didn't. So that's just a part of the history of the town? That's a part of the history of this town. Okay. Part of my history, so my great-grandfather, my grandmother's dad, um, he hated girls. And there was a night that he just burned a whole bunch of Bibles and like put a curse on all of the girls, saying, you know, they're never going to amount to anything like they're going to be, you know, in poverty. And like, he just did it because he just like really hated the family. And so he like, there was like a lot of like dark entities. If you go to my grandmother's house, like it is, it is known that dolls start walking around by themselves there's a lot of satanic yeah stuff like attached to my grandmother's shack and henrietta yeah yeah
0: I mean you were very descriptive uh in the book I mean you even described yourself in the womb of your mother as being in the belly of the beast I mean it was very descriptive um -hmm. so can you tell us a little bit about what, how did the, how you were sold for money, basically? Yep.
1: Okay, so what happened was, is, um, so to give you a little bit of backstory, the person that's on my birth certificate isn't actually my dad, he was my deceased aunt's fiance but he kind of wanted to kind of had something like to remember my aunt judy by so he hooked up with my mom temporarily and he decided to put his name on my birth certificate but he's not actually my dad so now,
0: is we that were... who you're now but you were but your mother was raped by your yes yeah okay.
1: she was raped okay. but we don't know if he knew that or if she lied like it but it was it was confirmed by my grandmother because my editor actually like did like huge long interviews with her it was confirmed that she was raped but she never actually told I think she was trying to pass me off as this guy's kid right because I think she was just really ashamed of it so they were together for a little while I think like eight or nine months and then he was like I don't want to have anything to do with you. Like, you're nothing like Judy. And so my mom was single again. And then when I was two, she found this guy and she had had an affair with a cop and it was actually the cops. My brother is actually the the policeman officer's son and This guy knew that, but still wanted to claim him as his own, but he hated with a passion. He hated girls. So I didn't like him very much. Um, I was super avoidant. Again, me being honest, me being brutally, like I wasn't, even as a kid, I was not going to play that game of like, I'm going to attach because, you know, I feel like attaching or it's the right, excuse me, the right thing to do. No. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't attaching to him. And my mom was growing really concerned because she wanted to marry this jerk. Sorry, that was kind of me. The guy, okay, yeah. it's the guy. Got so it. we were, we were, we were having this conversation on my bed, and my mom said to me, she said, "Mary, I need you to like John." And I was like, "I don't want to." Right. And she's like, "But you have to because like our financial position like really depends on it." And she's like, you want me to be happy, right? And I'm like, I'm like, yes, mom. I like, or actually I called her Linda at that time. I was like, yes, Linda, like, I want you to be happy. (sighs) And I looked at her and I was like, all right, all right. I surrender. I will attempt to attach. And you're about four, right?
0: At this time. Yeah. 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 I'm
1: about three. I'm about three and a half. So I jump off the bed and my little bare feet hit the floor and I jump onto the couch and we were watching a movie and a commercial had come on and i had kind of did this with my arm so i'm sitting here and i wrap my arm kind of like around his neck he takes a cigarette lights like lights it to my skin i scream my mom takes me to the hospital and the doctor said well linda this is a third degree burn this isn't accidental he said, I really should be calling social services. I should call the police, but because, you know, I know you and I delivered you, I delivered her, I delivered you and I delivered your mom. I'm not going to say anything. And she went back. I don't know how she did it. Like, honestly, I, I don't, but you in know.
0: mine In your three and a half, four year old mine. what is this telling you?
1: Um, I was... I was still trying to figure it out like I didn't know why I had gotten burned yeah um I didn't know and I think instinctively I was like he just doesn't like me like I felt like I had done something wrong by cuddling up with him and I just felt like this is completely my fault so a couple of weeks later my mom and I was rebellious. I didn't listen. My mom tells me, she's like, okay, Mary, like, I'm going to go to work now. You need to stay in your room. Well, I had verse voices coming in from my room because I was in my mom's, I was in my mom's room. I was sleeping in her bed and it was summertime and I heard voices and I got curious, stupid me, I got curious and I saw, on. Um, John and these two other men exchanged money and I stupidly asked for money Mm -hmm. and they're like well in order for you to get money like you're gonna have to do this and so then they hogtied me with my hands behind my back and gagged me and they gang raped me and I was left I passed out And I was wearing a white nightgown. Oh my gosh, it was so pretty. It had like, it was kind of like that, like really light cotton, you know, that has like the pretty eyelets, Mm -hmm. like around like the hand and like on like the little sleeves and stuff. It was soaked in blood. My underwear was soaked in blood. The, 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 The blood had congealed so badly that it actually acted like kind of like an adhesive to the floor. I just remember it being like so sticky. And then I freaked out because there was this huge mess of blood and I was just like, what am I going to do? Like, my mom can't see this. She's going to like break out and like, I can't have that. Like, she needs this person I need to do, like, I need to be good. And so I ended up, um, I ended up, it was dark now, like, it was kind of light, like, when this all started, but by this point, it was dark, and I just remember taking it, and just kind of, like, balling it up, and then throwing it underneath the bed, Mm -hmm. and I don't know, I don't know what else happened, but, um, from that night, I don't remember too much about that night, I don't know if I had just gone to bed, or what, but, um, A few weeks later, um, after that, um, neighbors and my mom noticed that I was bleeding profusely. I was wearing pads at this point and, um, I was just, I wasn't even playing anymore. Like I was just complaining of like really severe, um, stomach trauma. Like I just felt really sick all of the time. And what happened, the reason that they found out was because so he had raped me one time in a closet and he was removing this like blue carpet. And there's all of these adults around, and I'm stamping my foot and saying, Mommy, Mommy, where's my blood? Where's my blood, Mommy? Like, where did it go? And one of the people that was in that circle knew my grandmother. Mm -hmm. And she talked to my grandmother and she said, we have suspicions that she's being trafficked. Like, she's not leaving the house. She's wearing pads. She's not ever outside anymore. And all of these men are coming and going from the house. And my grandmother was like, okay, like, she's, she's being trafficked. And, um, I remember one day, um, I had been held up by my throat and then they had moved their hand from my throat to my chest and like three men were just like burning me on my feet. Um, I had images of having vaginal sex with him, with my mom being in the shower. I had images of child porn and it was really weird. And, like, very kind of, like, out of, like, almost, like, an out-of-body experience. Like, when I actually heard, like, when my editor asked, and she, when she asked my grandmother, um, did you know that Marianne was trafficked? And she said, yes. It was kind of surreal. Like, it was, like, you know, it was very, very surreal in that point. And I actually told my editor, I was, like, look... I don't know if I can handle this entire interview with you interviewing my grandmother. I said, so i gonna... grandmother
0: knew or your mom knew
1: everybody. And like my grandmother knew for sure. Okay. And the doctor knew some stuff was going on. Yeah. And my mom's best friend knew because she reported us to the child protective services of Henrietta. So essentially, what happened was is my mom had gotten a court order saying that if she did not show up on this given date, that there was not going to be a chance for her to fight for custody. They were just gonna automatically remove us. This was like an emergency court hearing that she had to attend. So my mom not wanting to face charges, obviously, because you know there was already a whole bunch of like doctor's reports and stuff like that. She ended up fleeing from Henry at Oklahoma and then she had gone to San Antonio. Okay. And so that's right. how you guys escaped that part. Yeah. So that's how we escaped that part. Yes. Okay. So just to recap,
0: cause yes, that's, I mean, I know that's tough, right? That's a very tough mm. spot right there. Mm-hmm. So um, this was your mother's boyfriend, right? but he was the father of your your brother right or no all right guys so we had a little technical difficult but i was just recapping what elizabeth just said so um this was your your mom's boyfriend yes your brother's father was he your your brother's father
1: or no he was my brother's father on paper but not genetically got not it. genetically got it and I that was that. actually her husband because they actually got married like okay. she actually married yeah she married him okay. yeah she did
0: marry him and it kind of started with just one day you were trying to connect to him and he burned you with a cigarette or cigarette yeah. lighter
1: yeah that
0: mm-hmm. ended up in a trip to the hospital the doctors yeah. were very suspicious but yeah. kind of the town that you're in everyone's like we'll just let it we'll just let it pass this
1: time right Right. yeah
0: yeah then um your one day your mom goes to work she tells you stay in your room elizabeth but curious three and a half four year old elizabeth does not do that she comes no. out she hears some men talking and exchanging money yes and that is when you were raped i was three yeah i was yeah right. and i was three yeah that was, the at, first time I was at raped. that Time. Was this a vaginal rape? Was what type of rape? Um, was it? I
1: believe I believe it was both because um I just it was like it was I'm not sure if it was both or if it was I know that it was the one because like there the, the blood was yeah. Um, the blood was so bad like yeah it was so it was so so bad and the thing was too is like it wasn't just like a little bit it was like to the point that I was wearing like adults like feminine products and where
0: where were you getting adult pads and and how was um, noticing that you were wearing adult pads like at so three and knew, a half years old
1: they they knew that I was wearing them because um I had them in my underwear and it's really weird too because um when I got adopted into my first family she was like really suspicious because I was all I was meddling with her pads and I knew exactly how to use them mm-hmm. and she was like this is kind of weird and I knew exactly like how to put them in the trash can and like I I knew exactly what they were for
0: yeah and
1: um I think this is where my mom's friend kind of was like this isn't normal right there's something seriously messed up with this and I remember like you know when you talk about I'm going to be a little bit graphic here. But when you talk about like pelvic flooring exercises and kegels and stuff to like strengthen your pelvic flooring after childbirth. Ever since I was a little kid, if I laughed too hard, if I ran too hard, if I did anything, like even when I sneezed, even as a kid, four, five, six, I would tee my pants. Yeah. And I realized that there isn't that's not normal. Like there was a lot of vaginal, like, trauma that, that happened, because that's not normal, little kids don't do that, right, and so, um, there, and, like, I had, um, just the stomach pains, like, I just remember, like, I do remember, like, laying on the couch, and my mom would be, like, you know, do you want to go outside and play, and I'd be, like, no, like, I was, I was, like, just, melancholy and just sad and sick and just not really engaged at that point right and then um and that was like kind of hard because like my brother like needed me but during that time like I don't I don't really remember like really caring for him at that point right compared to like when I was in Texas and so I feel kind of bad because it's like I know that if I wasn't like taking care of him then he was probably being abused yeah. but during that time I just I don't really remember what was happening with him yeah and you
0: talked about that in a book because you here you are a four-year-old and you were trying to look out for your baby brother who was maybe one and a half at the time yeah Mm -hmm. And I was like, this young baby, who's a baby herself, four years old, here she is trying to mother another baby. And it's amazing um, just how you were so descriptive with that. And and it's, it's amazing how you, you, all your survival skills just really kicked in for you to survive this stuff. And it's amazing. So Mm -hmm. let's move forward. Okay. So someone does report this, to child protective services Mm -hmm. your Mm -hmm. mom decides to run to Mm -hmm. texas Mm -hmm. you're now in texas and Mm -hmm. how do you go from there living with family into now going into like a a, i guess through adoption
1: yeah okay so my aunt yeah so my her aunt and uncle so my great uncle and my great aunt not the people that raped her some a, a different different relative they had a teenage daughter named Darla, who was the same age as my mom. So they took care of us for a while, and really bad stuff started happening. so um uh, so my brother. Um, was just being completely neglected and he was being starved I was living off of dog food but I I remember you mentioned that like you guys were just whips for no reason yeah we were just like we were just like barely like surviving and like it was hard for me because like I could I could change like his like his wet diapers were like not so much of a problem for me to change but man the poopy ones like I would get like poop like yeah everywhere like I just I don't know why I couldn't figure it out but like it was it was like easy for me to like change him and then what I would do is there was like a dresser and that was like next to the crib so I learned how to like crawl up the dresser and then I kind of like learned how to sort of like belly flop from like the dresser into the crib to like change him and I would like pretend to read him stories and stuff and I would pass like milk through sometimes like the, the crib bars. And I would come out and tell that like, I would, I would tell like people, like either my mom or who was ever in the living room, I would be like, you know, Clayton, Clayton food, like Clayton, like, like his diaper needs to be changed. And they would just kind of ignore me. And then I would just do the best that I could changing it um I, I failed so bad like I failed so bad when you
0: do I mean you've processed that you know that that was
1: never well, no I mean I mean I'm thinking about it now and I'm like come on like how how well do you think a four-year-old would yeah, really be able to change I, a diaper like that you know but at yeah. the time at the time like I just felt so like you know so helpless and so what sometimes I would do though is like if it was getting like really really chaotic in my house I would give him piggyback rides Out of the house, and we would like, and I would have like, I would take whatever food I could because at four, I knew how to open up, um, can like cans, like with can openers and stuff. So I knew how to do that. Um, I knew how to get the milk from the carton into the bottle, it it was a mess, but I learned how to do it kind of. And so I would just, I would just like take him with me, and we would escape for a couple of hours, and then, um, It was, it was getting pretty violent though. Um, I remember us getting beaten really bad with belts and I would often stand in front of him and my great uncle. So that way I would get the beating instead of my brother. And um, I, um, I was kind of, I was very protective of my mom and my brother. Like the last the last day when we were moving from Texas, my mom told me the story and she said, um, he was going after me and she said, you just ripped into him. And like, I bit him so bad. Like there was just like blood, like just spewing all over the room. Like I literally took like a chunk out of his arm. Her husband. Yeah. Of her husband. And like, he like completely backed off. And so I learned how to kind of like, you know, I would sometimes like, you know, huddle over my brother's body and just like take the beatings for him and stuff. Yeah. And like, but it got it got pretty it got pretty gruesome because um my uncle had a really bad temper and um I think my mom knew something had happened. She was at work and my uncle had gotten I don't remember her name. It was just some some girl in in the tub and um I heard all this screaming and I had gone into the I had gone into the bathroom and there was like blood everywhere. I mean just everywhere and I was like okay I've gotta get towels I've gotta like stop the bleeding I've gotta like I've gotta like help her like she's gonna like die. And I remember them, like, they were sitting at the table and they were just kind of, like, laughing at me because I was trying to, like, find washcloths. And I was, like, demanding, like, where are the washcloths? Where are the towels? Like, I need to stop the bleeding. And they're, like, there's, we don't have anything like that. And I was, like, she's gonna die. Like, she's gonna die. And I just kept, like, saying this, like, over and over again. And, like, there was, like, literally, like, nothing I could find to, like, or nothing, I'm sure I could have, like, come up with, like, blankets or something. But in my mind, I was just, like, for some reason, like I didn't I don't know why I didn't think about it, but in the chaos of everything, I was just like, There's no towels, there's no washcloths, like how do I stop all this blood? And I like remember too, like I remember seeing like um kind of look like spaghetti noodles in her hair and like it didn't it it didn't register until until like I was older. Like it was actually like brain matter, like was mm. like mashed under like her Was her she smell, shot right?
0: or what was
1: what No, was- he had just taken our head and he just like banged it up against the cloth but tub so much that he just like he gave like I don't know like he just cracked he just cracked her head open up on the bathroom like the side of the you, tub so
0: you never really knew who this woman was this no
1: was- I didn't okay. this was just like it was just some in the some poor girl. Yeah. yeah just some poor girl that was probably Sweet. there at the wrong time wrong place and yeah. so she calls me over and she's like Mary Mary she's like it's it's okay She's like, there's nothing, there's nothing you can do. She's like, I'm going to go to be with Jesus now. And I was like, no, you can't, unless you're going to take me with you. And she's like, no, you're too little. Like you can't go. Mm -hmm. And she's like, can you pray with me? Because she's like, I'm about to die. Mm -hmm. And I just remember praying with her. And then I remember like a whole bunch of cops just like came into my house. And like, there were, there were two there were two cops in, in, in the, in, in the, in the bathroom and I lost plate and I don't know, I don't know where my brother was at this time. Like, I just, I think, I think he was playing with, with one of the other cops that I, I really don't remember. Yeah, I'm sure it's
0: dim. Yeah.
1: And so I, this one cop like picked me up and he was like dancing with me and stuff. And I was wearing like this short little nightgown and I was doing this thing with my dress where I was like twisting it up in my finger and like letting it go I still do that to this day it's such a funny little weird habit that I I developed as, as a kid and he was asking me like what happened and I said he killed her he banged her head against the against the tub and like he killed her and so he was like yelling at me and the cop was like trying to decipher like what really happened and like who to believe and like I don't I don't know like ever like whatever happened with like the result of that but I do remember that night my mom came home and I could not get like I bit my nails pretty bad but like the cuticles like the like were beet red Mm -hmm. and I could not get the blood out of like underneath my fingernails and she was like asking them and she's like what is all of this red stuff under her nails and they're like oh it's just hair dye it's just hair dye and she's like, and I remember the conversation. My mom was like, this is not hair dye. Like, this is something entirely different. Like, it's not coming off. And um, it was shortly after that, that my mom had, um, she was thinking about putting us up for adoption because she realized that we were being like really abused while she was going to work. And she had contacted this agency in San Antonio called Adoption Services Associates. And so She had gone there, had talked about it, decided to keep us. And then I guess I think this was sort of the thing that kind of like made that decision for her. And she was like, I'm just going to relinquish them. Um, I do remember getting beat. I had dusted off some white powder off a table. I had gotten beat for that. And um, I was drugged, too. Um, I was drugged pretty bad. They used to drug my dog, too. I remember my poor little dog. I had a little doggy.
0: Giving them and, uh, what or giving you what? Do you know? or
1: not? I don't know what they gave me, but I was really, really happy. And then all of a sudden, like I was spinning really fast. Like I was, I was, I was, it was kind of fun at first. And then as I was spinning, I was like vomiting, like really like, like, bad bad vomiting like really really bad vomiting and I um I passed out like in the corner of like the hallway and I kind of remember vaguely in my memory like my mom being like what happened to Mary and they're like oh you know she's fine she's just like a little sick and I just kind of remember my body being like really limp as she put me into bed. I don't know what they gave yeah. me, but it was, it made me unconscious. I know that it made me, it didn't, like, I, I didn't have the ability to speak. I could hear like auditory sounds, but I couldn't move.
0: Yeah. So I'm
1: not sure. I'm not sure what they gave me. I'm thinking it might have been crank which is, it's like, it's like methamphetamines because mm-hmm. my mom was taking methamphetamines at that time. And she actually had a drug dealer that was coming to our house. Mm-hmm. And her name was uh, Linda too. And so there was like, there was a lot of drugs that, yeah. that you know, I that I was gonna be-
0: ask you, the adults that were around you, I mean, drug addiction, was there anything else? I know you said there was still dark energy, dark entity, like, was there anything else you could- could in hindsight um figure out I know poverty like was there anything else that while the adults around you were just just so neglectful on so many levels
1: I think it's I think it's just I don't want to sound like this is gonna sound very politically incorrect, but I don't really know how else to say this. I think it's just hillbilly mentality. Mm-hmm. You know, where it's like, you know, let the kids just kind of do whatever they want, you know, and yeah. you know, kids aren't supposed to be, you know, they're not supposed to be seen, they're not supposed to be heard. And it was just sort of like the gross poverty. Yeah. That like, like I'll I'll fast forward a little bit. So I brought my grandmother up to Canada for a little while for three months and like she didn't know how to use a knife or fork she didn't know how to use an elevator she didn't know how to use an what escort. year was this uh 20 2013 2014 wow and okay. she just her just like she'd never seen an asian person before like it was just like i think that there is like when you're that uneducated, I think you just really don't even know how to take care of kids. Wow. You know what I mean? Like there's yes. just like, a really like, it's not, it's almost like I can't, I can't really blame her because like, she's like, I mean, she only had an eighth grade education. She got married yeah. when she was like 14. She had seven kids. Yeah. So it's like, how much how much education how much you know how much have you developed intellectually how much have you developed yeah. emotionally yeah to be able to really step into this place of what's right what's wrong if you still have a mentality of a 14 year old right yeah, for sure and so there's this i think it's 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 just it's just that mentality of kind of like 1920s kind yeah. of thing that is just I mean kind lack of, of
0: education lack of knowledge mixed with extreme poverty and uh and close-minded you know not yeah. not yeah. wanting to know better yeah is, is that another true. thing so yeah. I understand that so let's fast forward because I tell you guys it's a, it's an amazing read you know it's a really good read I mean I was drawn in And I want our readers to kind of get some good nuggets out of here. Um, Elizabeth, she is adopted into a family who has uh, fertility issues. And I really want you to touch on that because I love that you said that, you know, for adoptive parents, like, it's not going to, adopting a child is not going to fix your marital issues. It's not going to fix infertility. You know, it is not going to make you happy. So Mm -hmm. know what you're getting into when you're adopting a child.
1: Mm. Yes. Um, I have to say like you had asked me in my email, you're like, you know, I want, I wanted your views on adoption and I have, okay. Out of, all of the people that I have encountered in my life, I think I've only approved like maybe four or five people in my whole life, and been like, "You would make a good adopted family," or "You would like you would
0: you have children of your own?" And yes. we gotta touch on that that yeah. you have also put up for adoption. Yeah, we'll come back to that. And I tell we you, we'll come back to that. We yeah, I mean, it's Elizabeth's story is a very. I mean, it's it, it shows you how strongholds, generational strongholds. And if you don't understand and you're not conscious or aware of what's happening, how these cycles just repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. I mean, her story, like I said, is one of bravery. It really is.
1: Um, So I think that, okay, I I will be very bluntly honest. I don't think that interracial adoption is the best for the child. I think that it's I in for I that, yeah. I and think I think we it's, get
0: think... ourselves when we, when we don't. Like, we, yeah. Know, yeah. we could just yeah. love them, but that's not enough for a no. child to know no, who they are. Not.
1: And I think that there are, um, okay. So hmm, I am not pro-abortion, okay? I'm very pro-life. But I think that there is this misconception in certain circles that people think, well, adoption will fix this issue. And I think that the adoption narrative as it stands is essentially like, okay, if you've messed up, if you've had sex before marriage, if you are uneducated, if you don't have XYZ, then it is God's will for you to put up your child. Okay. I want to back up a little bit. So uh, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to dive deep into this because this is something that I'm very, very passionate about. And this is something that I am, I'm not going to like, I'm going to do it like no holds barred. Okay. So let's 1940s, 1950s, it was still illegal in the United States for interracial couples to marry but it was not illegal for people to adopt african-american children Hmm. this is huge that is huge this is huge Mm -hmm. the adoption narrative did not come into play until after there were laws protecting animals the protection of animals actually went in first and said you could not abuse an animal and Child Protective Services actually came from that. And they basically said, well, if you can't abuse an animal, I guess technically you really can't abuse a child. The other thing that happened too was for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years, it really didn't matter how many people were in a household. But suddenly in Republic white America and around the 1970s they started making housing zones basically saying that if you have children that you have to have an adequate number of bedrooms for these children why thousands and thousands of years the Irish people had 15 16 children that were you know they did the best that they could they had family you know they had you know Farmland, and you know, the kids just wore, you know, hand me downs for generations. And all of these kids came out, you know, hardworking, normal, with a good sense of identity, and all of this kind of thing. But suddenly, with this housing thing, it was sort of like, well, if you're not rich enough, then you know, there are other people that can have your children. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the fact that there were, you know, African slaves that were breastfeeding white children. And, you know, these white families were able to basically house, you know, whatever kid that they wanted. And just, you know, if they couldn't have a child of their own, they could just take one off of the plantation. As long as it was white enough, fair enough, they would raise it as their own with whatever story they wanted to do that with. It is And I've seen adoption from a lot of different angles. And so before people, you know, throw shade at me, you know, understand I've, I've been through, you know, I have three birth certificates underneath my belt. I have witnessed international adoption in Brazil. My brother is also adopted. I have another sibling that's adopted. I've seen the after effects of, you know, my mom, you know, going through her two adoptions. The kidnapping of my two children through a cult. So like there, there's a lot of pieces here. So before people are like, Oh, well, you're not an expert because you haven't adopted. I actually wanted to, but there was no way that I was going to be the villain in someone else's story. As a matter of fact, when I went to apply to be a foster mom, they said, wow, you they're like, you have so much information. You are such a good person. And I was like, but will any of these foster things lead to adoption? And they said, yes. And I said, I cannot do that to somebody else's family. If I'm going to house a child temporarily, that is one thing. But I said, I am not going to claim ownership of someone else's child because I said, I'm not going to become the villain in someone else's story. I said, that is not what I am on this earth for. The other thing that you have to understand too, is why is there, why are African-American children cheaper than Caucasian children?
0: And we're speaking on adoption prices.
1: Yeah, we're talking about adoption prices, and you can actually Google it. There are sites that you can go to, and there so are. It is that's, actually sites. that's interesting because
0: I've never, you know, I'm, I have a, a my own son, you know, that I gave birth to, so I've never gotten into adoption and in the price mm-hmm. and the cost. But I, I know mm-hmm. people who have, you know, went through that process. So t- is that current today?
1: Yes. Yes, it is actually. It is. So it why is, actually... is it cheaper? Um. Because Caucasian children are more in demand, and the 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 sickening thing behind that is because wealthy people are afraid that. Oh my gosh, this is so hard to talk about. It's I so think hard. I to know them. what you're gonna it's, say, though. It's Go so ahead. hard. It is so hard. Like I can talk about my own story, but when it comes to like racism and like. the the way that the world is like I have like a harder time talking about that kind of stuff when it comes about like other people being bullied and other people being like demonized I have a really hard time talking about it because it like I don't know it does something to me I can talk about being sexually trafficked all day long but when it comes to like other cultures and other people's beliefs and stuff I have a really hard time like talking about it but There is this stigma that says that if you have an African child, African American child, that there is a higher chance of them being drug addicted, there's a higher chance of them being um, addicted to coke, there's a higher chance of them being addicted to methamphetamines. Hmm. And so most people want the Caucasian baby. And so organizations have said, well, because there is such a need for African-American children to be housed, which makes no sense to me, considering the fact that the laws essentially set it up that way. When you look at the laws and how it's stacked against socioeconomic backgrounds, it's just it's it's really frightening. Um, And so they're like, "Okay, we'll knock off like it's literally 10 to 1000 ten thousand to fifteen thousand dollars cheaper to adopt a black child than a Caucasian child
0: Hmm, that's interesting
1: and the thing that 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 the thing that really like irritates me is the fact that you have people that do GoFundMes for their gotcha day or their adoption day Hmm. but then when you have females that are saying, you know what, like I've been left, I've been abandoned. Can you help me? It's always like, we'll just put your child up for adoption because that's God's will for you. Mm. Wow. And this is my comeback to it. It's like, if it was God's will for you to have that baby, then he would have put it in your uterus mm-hmm. with your husband's sperm. And it should have been, if it was really, you know, in the plan for you to have a child. Yeah. And a lot of people think that that means that I'm anti-adoption. And the thing is, is it depends because I would say that the majority of adoptions, unless somebody is actually walking in on their own volition and saying, I don't want my child and they're actually going into an agency without pressure, without coercion, without blackmail, all of that kind of stuff, then I would say, okay, that person really understands the validity of what they're doing and they understand, you know, the consequences and stuff like that. The problem with it is, is as soon as a mom sort of changes her mind, it's sort of like, oh, well, you know that you can get pictures. Oh, no, you know that you can get letters. Oh, no, you know that you can do a completely open adoption. But here's, here's the thing that a lot of people don't understand. When it comes to adoption, it doesn't matter what the adoptive parents sign, because they can literally change the rules on that biological mom at any given time that they see fit. Mm -hmm. And no other contract in the world could you do that with. If I sign a contract with my editor that says I'm going to get 35% of that commission and they don't follow through with that 35% commission, I can go to a lawyer and I can say, you know, they broke the contract. They're responsible. You have to pay me that money back. But when it comes to adoption contracts, it's like, oh, well, if we decide that, you know, for whatever reason, we don't like you anymore we can just stop doing open adoption, we can stop doing visitation, we can stop doing letters, and we don't necessarily have to send you pictures if we don't feel like it.
0: Yeah. And adoptions are typically private agencies, right? So they, yes. they have their and own if you want guidelines. To
1: look, yes. And if you want to look at why there have been so many abortion laws changed over the last six months, it is because adoption agencies have gone to the like the people of power Mm -hmm. and said we're not getting a fair cut of the baby industry Mm -hmm. and so essentially what they said was is you know this is going to allow people to make we can make millions of dollars through adoption and so the states were like you know what technically we get more money through the state through adoption why because we have to employ social workers because we have to employ lawyers because we have to employ you know psychiatrist and therapist and all of this other stuff but the reality of it is if that doesn't scream that adoption brings trauma I don't know what else does if people yeah. are willing to put billions and trillions of dollars for all of these agencies to sort of suddenly pop out out of the middle of nowhere and there's a huge 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 billion trillion dollar industry on adoption tourism that nobody else wants to talk about
0: wow You've enlightened me today uh, because again, if it's not really, you know, a part in your backyard, it's something you, you don't look at. And it's something yeah. I, I just never really dive into, but you've mm-hmm. really enlightened me today. So let me ask you, do you feel adoptions, is it to
1: protect children or is it to make- No, it is, it is it, in, 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 okay. I will, I will tell you this. So a lot of Hispanic people that are dealing with immigration and if they're in a loss of housing or if they're in a loss of resources and they, you know, are just considering going to an adoption agency, one of the very first things that adoption agency will say sometimes and a lot of times is saying, well if you don't give us your child for placement, we're going to report you to ICE. Wow. And it is it is literally to give the upper middle class and the higher 1% children. And at whatever cost that comes at, it doesn't matter. I actually read a book called um, God in the Alley. If you have not read this, it's an amazing book. It's written by Greg Laurie. And I have this book completely memorized in the very end. I think it's on page 27 or 28. Um, No, uh, like 127. It's like at the very end of the book. Mm -hmm. He's talking about all of these homeless people taking communion. And he said there was one lady that was taking communion. She had sold her child to a human trafficker in Toronto for $500. She sold her baby for $500. And it was really interesting because I made a prediction to my husband, I said, mark my words, I said now that and I and I actually made like Facebook videos about this, too. I said, mark my words, people, when all of these, you know, when abortion ends, I said there are going to be more and more sites or more and more people trying to put up their children for adoption to get money. I am in an seriously group and within the last two months of Roe versus Wade being overturned. I mean, it's only been like a little bit of time. I've already seen like two or three ads in the surrogacy forum asking people if they will buy their children. Buy them. Buy them. Yeah. And when you have people saying, oh, can you please do a GoFundMe because we need $25,000 to adopt, but that same single mom needs $25,000 to adopt, we will tell the biological mom no but we will put money towards fundraisers and all of that kind of stuff for an adopted family. Mm -hmm. But if it's really empowerment, if it's really pro-family, why are we not allowing people to stay with their children? Right. Let's
0: give that same $25,000 to that biological mother. So she could put food on her table and feed Mm -hmm. her family and that
1: Mm type of thing.
0: Yeah, that's why I said you've you've enlightened me a lot on this whole adoption system because it's it's another system.
1: It is, it's another system. It is just another system. All
0: right, so we have to keep moving. Otherwise we could talk all day. There's again, get her book, Elevators to My Life. Um, where are you at today? Where are you at
1: today? Well, it's kind of funny. Um, so, you know, um, I went through this massive mm, rigmarole of my life and, um, I was in a really abusive relationship 10 years ago and where I, your
0: two your two kids, your no, two kids? that okay. that
1: that's a totally different situation. So I got married and I'll I'll go I'll briefly skim over that. So at 19, I had met this guy over the internet. He was super amazing. I was head over heels in love with him. We got married, we planned a family, and he was having issues with immigration. We moved from Oklahoma to San Antonio with my adopted family. And at this point I was mega attached to them because I had just encountered my entire birth story with my biological mom. And I was like, you know, I love them now and they love me now. And I put them on this really high pedestal and I was just like, okay, like I'm officially healed. I was in church. I was doing the whole church thing. I was doing Bible study. I was in choir. I was a youth minister. Like I was just doing, like, I was like, god's best advocate okay like if you were a sinner i was gonna come to your door pray with you you know save you you know it's gonna all be like you know magic and rainbows well and elizabeth
0: parents, talked about spiritual abuse in her book too because that's a whole another. That's,
1: that's a whole other realm i don't have enough time to go i know into we don't have enough that.
0: time but really briefly what she talked about was um was this your adoptive family
1: or yes. foster
0: okay yes. no okay, they, they, they
1: had legally they had Legally adopted me,
0: but in the name of religion God and the Bible yep.
1: and Jesus, yep.
0: they were inflicting abuse on her. Right? Oh yeah,
1: oh yeah. um Exorcisms. It was crazy. Um, yeah, yeah. It was. It was really bad. So I but read the book that, to get that. Yeah, you have to read the book to get that part. So I'm thinking like, okay, like I'm older now. Like my parents forgiven me. Like we're all good. Well, what I didn't know is that there were people in my extended family that were dealing with infertility. And I didn't know this. My parents were essentially keeping record of all of my marital problems and stuff. And um, when my marriage fell apart because my husband ended up getting tempted with drugs, um, my parents stalked him, threatened him with immigration, Never allowed me to tell his family in England, who happened to be extremely wealthy, by the way, and never, I never got to tell anybody what was going on. And my parents basically said, if you don't give us your children, then you're just obeying us and you're going to hell. Now, because of I had experienced so much spiritual abuse from the time I was 11 up until now, of course, I'm terrified thinking like, if I don't do exactly what my parents say, like, this is actually going to happen to me, like God's going to punish me and I am going to go to hell um they were coerced they were illegal they were full of blackmail they weren't even legal adoptions it was just guardianship papers and i signed them under duress he signed them under duress because my parents actually had a private investigator that was actually like stalking him and following him and when my parents found out where they lived, my mom and a caseworker just showed up unexpectedly and sort of just like, like, if you don't sign these, we're going to like deport you. It was like super, super horrible. And so, um, we, it wasn't even like a legal relinquishment. And then, um, halfway through all of this, my family's like, Oh, by the way, we've already talked to people in our church. They want your baby that you're currently pregnant with. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what do you mean? And so the day that I had gone into labor, my mom was like, oh, you need to fill out this particular paperwork to make it easier for them to get birth certificates and social security numbers for her. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. And my brother just recently told me that apparently they had lied to both of the families saying that um, I had predisposed my kids to drugs, which I never did. And my brother actually like defended me and he recently confronted my dad and he was like, what right did you have to completely destroy her life? Yeah. And my dad was just like, well, it was God's will for the kids to to go to different people. Yeah. And this was you your, know?
0: your, uh, your religious.
1: Yeah. This was my religious like Christian parents. family that did yeah. this. Now I will tell you that as a forewarning for people who are like, oh, we can like basically do whatever we want to orphans. God has a very strong sense of justice. Every single person that was involved with the illegal kidnapping of my children ended up with serious consequences from that. My mom, six years after that happened, died of stage four D uterine cancer. The mom of the adopt that, that adopted my firstborn. Um, she ended up getting skin cancer. Her firstborn daughter ended up dying of cancer. The people that got my second daughter, they ended up with a heinous divorce. And he actually, the dad ended up having to fight for custody because she didn't actually even love my daughter because she became jealous of them. And they had like a heinous divorce. So there is like really strong scripture and God does not go back on his word when it says like vengeance is mine when it comes to like widows and orphans. And the thing is, is even if an orphan gets a family in God's eyes, they're still an orphan. Mm -hmm. So don't mess with us orphans because God will smite you. Like, I have no Mm -hmm. joke about that. Like it was just like, it was astonishing to see like how broken these people became. Yeah. Just because of all of that. So So you had three biological children yourself. I've had four. I've had four. Four. I've had four biological children. Okay. So, um, so I left, um, I left this really abusive relationship and God said to me, he said, go online. And he's like, I want you to look for an Asian guy. He was like very specific about this and I was like what is up with this Asian thing like I've never dated Asians before and he was like I want you to go online find an Asian guy so I came across this profile and God was like this is the person that you're gonna end up with and I was like what are you talking about like whatever so we like meet, and like I'm just thinking like you know it's just gonna be kind of like fun and like nothing serious well this guy ends up like falling madly in love with me his family just ends up like allowing me to stay there and then um he happens to be buddhist his family is buddhist and i was like okay this is kind of weird i'm like i don't because my relationship with god was sort of like christianity works for all of the good people but it's not really working for me because i'm like i'm just too defective i'm too broken god's done with me you know close chapter end of story right god has such a sense of humor so uh, this summer my this one summer my uh we were kind of like still dating and he was like going on his own search for God I did not know this like he kept this very like private and he came across this video of a girl who had died and like went to hell and went to heaven and he started asking me all of these questions this one day and he's like can you tell me how to become a Christian and I was just like "Mm mm-hmm I can tell you how to become a Christian. Like I know all of the ins and outs of how to become a Christian. So I'm telling him about like the cross and salvation and all of this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then he ends up, he ends up like accepting Christ. And then he looks at me and he's like, well, what about you? And I was like, it doesn't work for me. I'm too defective. Like, you're fine. Like you're going to heaven. Like, I'm not sure what's happening with me, but good luck with that and he's like well don't you think that you should pray like isn't this like a really good time to pray since i just accepted the lord and i was like i guess <laughs> I was yeah. Like, so yeah, like, yeah yeah. It's not like it's not that i was mad at god i was just trying to figure out like if i was so close to him with everything that happened with my kids like why didn't it work and i couldn't at that time i didn't realize that it was just parents agenda. It was just their agenda to destroy my life. And I really thought that God had did it, did it to punish me, but it wasn't like God punishing me. It was just my parents punishing me. Yeah. And so I, I, I sat there a little bit. And I was just thinking about the word grace just kept ringing through my brain. It was just grace, grace, grace. And I was like, I'm not sure if I can accept anything else right now, God, because this is like all so heavy for me. But the grace seems pretty light. I think I can carry that much for right now. Yeah. And so I just accepted grace and I was like, okay, like I accept grace and I accept your forgiveness and somehow you're going to make this all make sense. So I pray and like we had like some really weird like stuff happen like we saw like angels in the room like it was like a very spiritual like heavy spiritual moment right Mm -hmm. so after we're like done with this like two days later my he goes Brendan says to me he's like well don't you think we should get married and I was like "Mm -mm. Uh uh-uh like not this girl I'm not getting married again like I was like nope 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 and so I was like okay god I was like, if it's your will for us to get married, I said, you're going to provide a way for us to pay for this wedding without going into debt and without asking his parents. Well, God has a very clever sense of humor and he uses the weirdest things to kill us. And so I was looking for photography jobs in New York because I don't live too far from the United States border on the New York side. And I happened to see this thing that said surrogacy. We need surrogates. And I'm like, well, you know, I've already like, you know, gone through, you know, pregnancy and like, I'm really healthy and I haven't done drugs and all of this kind of other stuff. And so I became a surrogate. Now, the funny thing about this was, is I didn't know this at the time, but the people that I gave a surrogate for her mom was like this really huge, hardcore Christian from Florida. Mm -hmm. I happened to deliver the same day that i got married the first time when i was 19 with my first husband that i had the two girls with Mm -hmm. she walks into the delivery room and she says by the way she's like god told me that your soul wounds are healed today
0: Mm.
1: wow and we got married two weeks after that we got baptized and we've had like this amazing journey i'm out about to do another surrogacy i have a business now my book um elevators of my life won an award uh it won an impact award for 2021 um i do life coaching i've done uh speaking for anti-trafficking i've done like a whole bunch of stuff for people um i'm just really compassionate i love helping people um you know i'm you know i just i really feel like god had like a bigger plan in all of this and so um, You know, I talk, you know, and I, I I help families that have adopted, you know, kind of go through like, you know, how should they do this? And how should they do that? I do that on, um sometimes on Friday, I join like a clubhouse group that, you know, deals with adoption. Um,
0: you know, That's I write, a write for great customers. resource
1: for it. Yeah. Um, so God just like took this grubby little life and he was and it's so funny because like the shack, the book, the shack, it's like so memorable for me because like, I was literally brought to a shack, you know, like literally like two miles, like from the hospital. And, you know, I grew up in a shack and like, it was, it was so profound. And so I always tell people like, don't allow your shack moments to define your, your future because you never know what your future is going to hold. And, um, You know, I'm just really thankful that I healed. Um, One of the key components that I used for healing was Holocaust survivors. I spent seven months, over 10,500 hours, you know, watching the Holocaust, like stories and movies and documentaries and kind of what led up to that. That was a huge, huge resource for me. And then suddenly I was just like, okay, God, like it's done. And I was just able to surrender the pain and um just really allow love to embrace me and and encompass me and it was just like okay god this is exciting now life is great i'm okay it's joyful it's all gonna work out right yeah and uh you know and it's crazy because like just the amount of people that i've been able to share my story with like coming from this place of healing and going through all of that it definitely is a testimony of what grit and faith and grace will, 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 will get you and like how much god loves you and you know this whole thing that you know God is for you, even if life is against you, because sometimes life is not always for you, life is really messy, it can be really devastating, but God, but by grace, God is faithful in the mess, right, and so, um, you know, I've just really um i you know God's my best friend, yeah, you know, and I just I love him so much, you know, he's just taken me to to so many on so many levels of like healing and you know completeness and i and it's just it's just great because like i get to nourish my inner kid every day and it's like okay god like you know just another adventure and you know starting another surrogacy journey i i just signed the contract i'm starting medications in like seven days now and just so many like amazing things and i'm like this is gonna be your
0: second surrogacy um journey (laughs) Yes, yes. So, So just to recap, so that I got it in my head correct. So, you yes. have two baby girls. Yes. From a first marriage or a relationship, yes. right? First, first
1: marriage. Yeah, first marriage. Or did, that,
0: did those two go up for adoption or did they just go with their father?
1: No, they got kidnapped. They got kidnapped through my parents' cult. Okay. Okay.
0: So yeah, that's right. Cause he, this was with your husband and they manipulated with yeah. the operation and all that. Yeah.
1: Now, mm-hmm. last two pregnancies were those, uh, surrogacy or no, my last two pregnancies. So after all of that happened, I was working in San Antonio and my boss was like, I'm going to go out with a whole bunch of cookie Canadians. Do you want to come? And I was like, sure. Like I have like nothing else going on at my time. This was like a year and like literally a year to the day that all of this like finally was like finalized. And my husband was back in England. He abandoned me. My parents literally had nothing to do with me. And so I was like, sure. Like I have nothing else going on for me. So I met this guy, he was 15 years older than me, I okay, was 23 that is in the book. Yeah, okay. That is in the book. Yeah. And he was, you know, I was 23. And I was not thinking anything romantic. Like, I'm like, you know, I'm just here to like, for like a dinner thing. But right. he was like, really, really fascinated with me. And I told him the very first night that I was with him, I was like, I've been through a lot of stuff. Like I am not in a place to be married. I'm not in a place of like really good mental stability right now. Like I've just gone through a lot and I literally told him in one single breath well up to what I knew at that point. So like, you know, I told him about my kids. I told him like about my family. I told him like I told him like all of the stuff and he was like, "My gosh." He's like, "I want to keep you. You're really honest." and that was kind of what attracted him like that's why he was attracted to me because I was just a super honest kid I mean I was 23 I was a kid like literally I was a right. kid mm-hmm. and um but I was I guess he thought I was gorgeous and um you know kind of tro- trophy wife-ish not that I fit the the stereotype for that right. at all. Yeah. I mean I'm not blonde I'm not tall or anything yeah. but you know, he thought, you know, wow, like I get like a 23 year old. And so I came back. I, so I flew to Canada. Um, he met me, uh, December 20, uh, November 27th of 2003. He met me, he flew down again, December 1st. And then I flew back with him December 6th. And I just like moved in with him. This is like how, like, it was a very, very fast relationship. Yeah. And, um, being in Canada, getting on birth control is like really complicated and so I ended up being pregnant and he really wanted me to have an abortion because I was like super sick and I was like no I said I'm keeping this kid come hell or high water like it's my kid um if I die I die like it's fine but like I'm, I'm not having an abortion and so I was praying and I was like okay God like just make me better and within like 72 hours like I was better and then we had a baby and for the first three years of our marriage, like, it was good until I started having flashbacks and until I found out that I was, because in one day, in one day, I found out that I was conceived out of rape Yeah, and incest. And then in that same 24 hours, I also found out that I was sexually trafficked. Yeah, rape. so
0: the trauma was coming up. To it you. was,
1: it was just so much and I didn't know what to do with it yeah and it's like you know to go through all of that in a 24-hour period like your psyche is not meant to handle that Mm -hmm. I don't care who you are like if you find out like truth like that like you're gonna be completely different yeah and um he had a lot of sexual issues and he just kept pushing my boundaries sexually and the more I said no, the more broken I was. And then when I said yes, just because I was saying yes, it was like, I felt like I was being raped. And then he raped me legitimately, which I talk about in the book. He raped me legitimately after I had just been previously raped 24 hours prior. And I just, I broke. Unfortunately, I broke. And... I think by that point I had just gone through so much. It was like my psyche was like I literally had nothing yeah. left at that point. You were at to, the tipping to, point. Yeah. I was at the tipping point, you know. I had already gone through so much and um if you read in the book like it was a really horrific situation and um I left and I left because I didn't want my son to deal with the falling out of having a mentally ill mom because I was making really like I was super suicidal and I was really really afraid that I was going to kill myself while he was at school because at that point I was doing okay because I was with him all of the time and because I had just thrown myself into motherhood. I didn't really have time to reflect on everything that I had gone through but then as yeah. soon as he started kindergarten I had all of this time. And I didn't want to homeschool him because I had so much trauma from my own homeschooling experience. Yeah. And I was like what the heck do I do? Because yeah. I knew as soon as he started school I was going to start like falling apart but I also knew that I had so much trauma from my own homeschooling experience like I didn't think that I could e- I didn't think I could emotionally homeschool him well without having triggers. And I felt like I was kind of in this really bad spot for him, because like, I wanted to be a good mom. Yeah, but I also had all of these issues that I was like struggling with. And I was like, how do I do this? And I really didn't know. And nobody in my immediate family had even gone through anything remotely like that. And my psychologists were sort of like, well, it's just a miracle that she's still here. And my husband's like, well, you can just get over it and just deal with it and be present. But then it was like hard because I was also a single mom for like half the month because he was a pilot. So there was like all of this, like, I literally felt like I was in a pressure cooker. And then I was being raped on top of that, which was also like eroding my self-esteem and kind of causing me to have even more trauma. and I quit. And I feel so ashamed of that because like I, I I think back and I was like, you know, if I had just tried something different, if I had done something more, if I had just had more faith, like maybe I could have made it work. But then at the same time, like I realized that like God doesn't really want you in a marriage where you're being raped anyway, right? So like there, but I do have like this conflict because, You know, I think about my son and I'm like, you know, it sucks that you are in a broken family because of essentially me and having, you know, broken mental health because I could have just been like, you know, I could have just gone with it and, you know, just, you know, but because I had sexual issues and I was saying no all the time, it, it kind of went into rape. And so I just, it's a really hard um That's probably like my biggest. Yeah. If I had one regret, I think that's like my biggest regret that I didn't heal fast enough for him to save that marriage and to save him from from dealing with that
0: time on healing. And you, it was so much. I don't think you even processed at the time. You know, even now, it's it's still a lot to process and to. To understand, you know, as you talk about it, you know, those emotions come up. It's still so much there.
1: It is because it's like, you know, and I've, and I've talked to my son about it. And I was like, you understand that, like, I didn't want you to find me dead because I was really, really struggling with suicide. Is all and your he's... kids now of age? They're all of age now? Or... Mm-hmm. Um. So I had a, one child out of, Um. I actually did end up having a child out of rape during this time, and I tried to co-parent with my rapist, like, there is, like, this thing inside of me, like, I really hate to quit on stuff, and (laughs) don't know what it is, like, I just have, like, so much grit, and I was just, like, you know, I was already feeling bad about, like, the relationship with my ex-husband, and I was just, like, nope, like, I'm gonna make it stay, but then, um, he came really, he came too close to killing me, Mm -hmm. like really really close to killing me he ended up strangling me with a necktie and I couldn't breathe and then he took his hands and then he like covered my mouth too as he had like the tourniquet around my throat and I was like I have to quit this I didn't want to quit it but I was like I have to quit it if I'm going to like live because my son Scott needs me yeah and um I left and um you know I tried to co-parent with him for like a really long time and then it just became too dangerous and I was just like I have to let this go yeah and I prayed about it It was really hard for me like I prayed about it and God was like I'm not gonna judge you he's like you know you did and I wasn't gonna put like here in Canada um, adoption laws are extremely different. You can't just put up a child for adoption. Like you have to like, you have to have like both parents sign like adoption papers. It has to be done very legally, very ethically. And I was like, I'm not going to just do that just because it seems like an easy way out for me. And I always seem to take the hard road, even when it comes to like other people's feelings and other people's things. Like I'm not one of those people that I don't, I don't make selfish decisions like on a whim like I really really think about like okay how is this going to affect you how is this going to affect me how is this going to affect the kids and I really 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 tried to make that relationship work but I just realized like he was way too broken for me and I needed to be in a space where I could heal and just feel love yeah so I haven't had like with my youngest like I'll be honest like because of his dad's messed up like personality I haven't heard from him in a really long time I think it's been about three years okay but um I have a really tight relationship with my son um you know I'm about to do surrogacy and um the intended father was like yeah like you can definitely be an aunt so like there's going to be like more like I think kind of like healing with that so I think it's kind of interesting how God just like weaves all of these amazing Healing journeys, like even when we're broken and we you know we make mistakes, you know, um God is so I guess so faithful to cover our mistakes, yeah, you know, and that we don't have to live with that condemnation, right? And exactly. that was the thing that I really had to get through because, like for so long, I was like, well, I messed up here, and I messed up there, and I'm just not getting this thing right, and I realized that it's not in the perfection that God cares about. It's, it's in the gray. And I think yeah. that a lot of people live in a very gray, in low gray areas because, you know, people have tried to, you know, co-parent during rape and, you know, because they didn't want to do adoption. They didn't want to do. And, you know, however that works out, God's not like, they're like judging us. He's like, they're patting us on the back and say, you know what you did your best. And I think that's the thing that we miss is that we really just need to do our best. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily have to be perfect. It's just do our best. And then God just gives us grace to just do it better the next time, you know? And I have to say that I am pretty, if I can say this boldly, like I'm pretty proud of myself. Like I've been in a relationship now for 11 years, uh, going on 11 years uh, we've done surrogacy together. Um, we've done podcasts together on how to heal. Um, you know, I have a coaching business now and, you know, he supports me with that. And it's like, wow, like coming from a place of like complete brokenness to say that I've been married, you know, I can hail, you know, hold down a 10 year relationship, you know, almost six years, you know, six years of marriage. Like that's pretty, that's pretty good you know that's yes. pretty good
0: it's coming, amazing. From, coming from where yeah from where I've been, you've you know? been through something that like i said would have killed many people you know so can so very proud of where you are god
1: god is god is gracious yes. god is so gracious i mean like, and we god. gotta wrap
0: up i could talk to you for a long, I know, long time i
1: know but i we know i how long this one's gone on <laughs> yeah
0: so elizabeth i wish you a lot of uh success Mm -hmm. um and i wish you continued healing on this journey um her book let people know where they can get your book yeah
1: so my book elevators of my life it's on amazon i think pretty much worldwide so you can get it in the states you can get it in canada you can get it um in england brazil australia south africa Yeah, yeah i think you can get it in most in most countries you can get it in hardback paperback and on kindle i think it's free on kindle actually if you have kindle you can get it for free yep yeah it's it's
0: a great great testimony and um thank you for sharing with our listeners um and you know we're gonna close this elevator (laughs) <laughs> yeah we'll close this one we'll close this one and like I said uh just continued success continued blessings on your oh, journey and uh continued healing and and I'm sure your testimony will definitely, be helpful to others so if you are out there you're a woman Mm -hmm. you've dealt with adoption you were adopted you were abused as a child you were sex trafficked and you feel like there's no one out there you could talk to definitely reach out to elizabeth uh she can definitely help you through it when i tell you this is a story that most people wouldn't have survived i mean um, and she's, she's really, uh, sensitive in the book about it because there are, t- you know, areas about being suicidal and stuff like that. So she's very sensitive about the topic and just, just know that there's light. Just look for the light. There's light out there when you're in a lot mm-hmm. of darkness and there's mm-hmm. darkness around you. Sometimes you just, just look for the light. That's it. Mm-hmm. you don't know the mm-hmm. next step, just look for the light. Yes. So Elizabeth, thank you so much. And um, as always, I appreciate you so much. Okay.
1: Thank you so much, Janie, and all you have right. an amazing weekend, and have a great day. And I will be praying for you, and I I wish you the best of luck on your podcast and Thank all of you. your other guys. You have such an amazing, you have a very awesome studio. I love you so much, like, and I hope to meet you in person one of these days. Like, we should have coffee sometime. Yeah, <laughs> let me know when you're here in Atlanta in the U.S. I will. <laughs> Are you in Atlanta? Yeah. Oh my gosh, yes. I'm not going to believe this. My IP's family lives in Atlanta. Really? That's yes. We're going to have to we're going to have to exchange some information and get together when I come down. Definitely. Yes. Let, me, yes. let me know yes. when you're here. I will definitely sweet. have a great afternoon. Have a Thanks. great day. I appreciate Thank you. Too. Take care. Oh, you're welcome. All right, bye-bye. <laughs>